If you have a copy of the Scriptures close by, I'll encourage you to open to the New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. If you were here last Sunday, you know we left off in the book of 2 Timothy. And so as we're working our way through the New Testament, we've made the leap from 2 Timothy over Titus, over Philemon, all the way to Hebrews. And there's a reason we've done that. Uh, This upcoming year, when we get through the New Testament in 2023, Lord willing, as a church, we're going to work all the way through the book of Titus verse by verse. So we're not leaving Titus out. We're going to circle back and we're going to catch Titus in the spring of next year. If you were here Wednesday, Corey preached uh, in this room. Jason taught our college students. Jake taught the youth. All of those men preached the book of Philemon. And so that brings us this morning to Hebrews chapter 1. Some of you were here. Many of you were here in 2019. In 2019, we took one summer and we studied the book of Hebrews one chapter a week. And that required us to sort of fly over the top and to focus on the big ideas and not to answer all the small questions. And this go-around, we're going to move even faster through the book of Hebrews, but we're going to look at smaller passages, smaller units. We're not going to try to cover an entire chapter. We're just going to look at a paragraph or two each week. So this morning, our passage is Hebrews 1. Next Sunday, we're going to look at Hebrews 4, and then two Sundays from now, we're going to talk about Hebrews chapter 10. So this morning, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Let me say a few things about the book of Hebrews that hopefully will help us find our bearings as we jump into a new book and our trek through the New Testament. One of the wildest debates, most interesting debates in all of biblical studies, New Testament studies, is the question of who wrote the book of Hebrews. There are an unbelievable number of theories about who authored this book, who wrote this book. And I'll just put a few names up on the screen so you get a sense. There's people who say it was Paul. There's people who say Barnabas, Luke, Clement, Apollos, Philip, Peter, Silas, Epaphras, Jude. The list goes on and on beyond even the names up on the screen. All sorts of theories about it sounds like this guy, or maybe it fits with this guy's life story, or maybe it would be Barnabas for this reason, or maybe Timothy would be involved for that reason. All sorts of theories about who wrote the book. The honest answer is we have no idea who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's the honest answer. And there is a historian who lived in the fourth century whose name was Eusebius, And he quotes a man who lived before him named Origen. And according to Eusebius, Origen said that God is the only one who knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Who wrote this epistle is known to God alone. So the short answer is we have no idea who wrote it. We do have a pretty good idea about who it was written to. Who the intended audience of the book was. The oldest and best manuscripts that we have of the book of Hebrews have at the top of them, separated from the text, these words, to the Hebrews. And so the idea in that title is that somebody wrote this letter to a group of Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, and that makes sense when you consider the content of the book, the content of this book is almost entirely the Old Testament. 
from beginning to end, the book of Hebrews keeps going back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament says this. This is how you connect it to Jesus. The Old Testament says that. This is how you connect it to Jesus. So you understand this would be a helpful book for a Jewish Christian who has spent their whole life reading Genesis through Malachi. Now they've put their faith in Jesus. And this book, Hebrews, is helping them connect the dots in how they understand the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures. Now looking around the room and knowing most of you, this is also a helpful book for non-Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but the vast majority of your Bible is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And you and I need to know, what do we do with that book? We're not Jewish. We don't follow all those Jewish laws and rules and regulations. How do we understand those books in light of the fact that Jesus has come and He's lived and He's died for us, Hebrews helps us answer all of those kinds of questions. As you read Hebrews over the next few weeks, you will read a book that is filled with theology and doctrine. And you will read a book that consistently takes that theology and that doctrine and applies it to your life. It is a theological book. And it is a practical book. And there's a positive and a negative chorus that echoes back and forth as you read through the book of Hebrews. Negatively, the book of Hebrews warns you as a follower of Jesus about the danger of falling away. Or as Hebrews 2 describes, drifting away. And the book of Hebrews warns us over and over, don't stop following Jesus. But it's not just a negative warning. There's also a positive encouragement. Keep following Jesus. Don't stop following Jesus. And this goes back and forth all the way through the book. Don't turn away from following Jesus even if you're suffering. Even if it's hard. Keep following after Jesus. This book drives us to these ends. Do not stop following Jesus. Continue to follow Jesus. Now, that's Hebrews as a whole. Here's the big idea of our passage. Hebrews 1, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. The big idea. Jesus, the Son of God, is the prophet, capital P, the priest, capital P, and the king, capital K. Jesus, the Son of God, is the prophet, the priest, and the king. If you have your copy of the Scriptures, we're going to read this opening paragraph, Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
That's the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the chance to study. We pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand what it means to call Jesus the Son of God. Help us to understand what it means that Jesus came to be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Father, open our hearts to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was scrolling through Facebook. It's always a dangerous thing. Came across a post from our former youth pastor, Hunter Siegler. He's now serving at a church in San Antonio. And he posted on Facebook and he said, My church in San Antonio is planning to host a trunk or treat event at the church. And it's a costume event. And the theme for the event is heroes. You are to dress up like one of your heroes. And so Hunter posted a picture of himself on Facebook with another picture beside him. And he said, one of my heroes is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I would like to go to this trunk or treat event dressed as Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now what you didn't see on Facebook was a side text group that involved me and Corey and a few other people in which Corey said, you're never going to be able to preach like Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It doesn't matter what kind of costume you put on. And Corey offered other encouraging words to Hunter in this respect. But he posted on Facebook and he said, I want to go dress like Spurgeon. He's one of my heroes. And this is what Hunter was asking. He said, I need a suit, a tweed suit, 19th century style, this was Hunter's term, for somebody with a robust physique. Spurgeon was a robust man. If you know Hunter, you know that he could probably pull this off pretty well. And he was looking for a suit so that he could go dressed as Spurgeon. I have no idea if he found the suit that he's going to wear to this trunk or treat event. I do know that Charles Haddon Spurgeon is a hero to a great many pastors, preachers, and Christians. He was a pastor and a preacher in London well over a hundred years ago. He's a remarkable man. His life is an amazing story. For the last several months, I've been reading a biography. It's not the kind of biography you just sit down and read. It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. It's written by a Baptist scholar named Tom Nettles, and the book is titled Living by Revealed Truth, The Life and Pastoral Theology of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, I've read other biographies of Spurgeon and things that he's written and books that he's published. And he's amazing, amazing as a preacher, as an author, as a teacher. But as I've been reading this book, I've just been struck by his life and his ministry. He was a faithful preacher of the gospel. He pastored what many historians look back and recognize as the world's first modern megachurch. People flocked to hear him preach in London. His sermons were transcribed, written down, sent by telegraph across the Atlantic to the United States so that they could be printed and reproduced and distributed every Sunday. The amount of material that he produced in the form of sermons and books and letters and correspondence is absolutely mind-blowing. In fact, in the beginning of this book, Tom Nettles, Dr. Nettles says, no one who wants to write a biography of Spurgeon could ever, ever, ever read everything that he wrote. 
because all you would do is read and you would never get to the writing the book part. It's absolutely an avalanche of material that came from his mouth and from his pen. One of the most amazing things is that he pastored year after year after year after year faithfully in London without a hint or a whiff of moral scandal. He had enemies. He had people who did not like his doctrine and his theology. He had people who criticized him as a backward, ignorant, primitive, Bible-thumping preacher. He didn't care. What he did not have is people who accused him of any sort of impropriety. He was a man of character and consistency throughout his ministry. He is today one of the most quotable preachers that you'll find. And I thought this morning I would just share with you some of my favorite Charles Spurgeon quotes. Here's a first quote. You've probably heard somebody say this, call me what you like, but don't call me too late for dinner. Maybe your grandma used to say that or your grandpa used to say that, but some historians think that Spurgeon was the first guy that said this, and he was popular, and he threw it out there in a sermon, and it stuck, and it spread. While we're talking about food, Spurgeon also said there are difficulties in everything except eating pancakes. That's pretty good life advice. Life is hard. Things are going to be tough. Everything's not going to go your way, but maybe every now and then you can get a stack of pancakes. Everybody loves pancakes. Spurgeon's mom was named Eliza, and when Spurgeon became a Christian and he was baptized in a Baptist church, Eliza said this to her son, Ah, Charles, I often prayed to the Lord to make you a Christian, but I never asked that he would make you a Baptist. To which Spurgeon said this, The Lord has answered your prayer with His usual bounty, and He has given you exceedingly abundantly above what you asked or thought. Very quotable. One more quote, not a funny quote. This one comes from May 21st, 1882. Sunday night church at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Charles Spurgeon preached on Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, 2, three, and four. And towards the beginning of that sermon, Spurgeon said this, I have nothing to do tonight but preach Jesus Christ. That's the center of Hebrews 1, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's really the center of the book of Hebrews. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ and what did he do on our behalf? If you read Spurgeon's sermon from 1882, I read it this last week, it's divided into two parts. The first part is the question, who is Jesus? And we've already answered that in the big idea. Jesus is the Son of God. Who is He? He is the Son of God. The second half of Spurgeon's sermon was, what did the Son of God come to do for us? And his answer It's the Bible answer, which we've pulled out of Hebrews 1 already, is he came to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. So this morning, we're going to follow the broad outline of Spurgeon's sermon. We're going to ask and answer these two questions about Jesus. Question number one, what does Hebrews 1, 1 1-4 teach us about the identity of Jesus, the Son of God? And the first thing that these verses teach us, to be very clear about this title, the Son of God, these verses teach us that Jesus is God. Now, this is confusing for many of our brains. 
This is confusing because we think, well, there's God and there's God the Son, and they can't be the same. And it's confusing because we hear the title, the Son of God, and we think, well, the Son of God sounds really important, but a little bit below real God, actual God. There's God, and then there's His Son. He's got to be a little bit below Him. But this is what we read in verse 2, that long ago, and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The people who lived when Jesus lived on the earth heard Jesus use this title, the Son of God. They heard people call Jesus the Son of God, and they understood exactly what was being said. What was being said is that Jesus is God. People who lived around and with Jesus understood this. You see it in John chapter 5. The Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only did they think he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, calling himself the son. And they understood that that was making himself equal with God. To be referred to as the son of God does not mean that you're less than God. It means you are truly God. And the best way that I can explain this to you might be the world and the study of zoology and biology thinking about the categories of kinds or species. My wife and I have been married for about 20 years. We have four children. Most days we are reasonably certain that they are human beings. Most days. We're human beings. Human beings have children and they're human beings. They're not less human because they're my children. They're really human because they're my children. Likewise, in our home, we have two rabbits. To the best of my knowledge, they're both females. But to the best of my knowledge, if they were to escape their pens and peruse the neighborhood, find Mr. Right Rabbit, they would have bunnies who would grow into rabbits because they're rabbits. We have a dog. If he was to have offspring through another dog, they would have dogs. When the Bible talks about Jesus as the Son of God, it's not saying to you that He's less than God, He's below God. It's actually saying to you, He is truly, really God. He's divine. This is God among us. You see it in verse 3, another example. Verse 3 says that He, the Son, is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Can I remind you of what we read in Isaiah chapter 6? The angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When God's holiness is on display for the world to see, the Bible word for that display is glory. Holiness is the thing that makes God God. And when it goes on display, that's His glory. And later in the very same book, the Lord, notice it's all caps in both verses, Yahweh, the Lord says, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. 
He absolutely refuses to allow lesser, little g, phony imposter gods take his glory. And yet we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 does not say that Jesus reflects the glory of God. Like the moon reflects the light of the sun. Like Moses reflected the, the glory of God when he came out from the tent and his face was glowing and he had to wear a veil. That's not what Jesus did. That's not who he is. He is God's son. He is the radiance of his glory. He's God. This is the deep end of the pool, theologically. This is where our human brains start to hurt and malfunction and smoke starts to come out of your ears. This is the equivalent of a parent taking their child to the deep end of the pool, skipping the kiddie pool, and tossing them right in the deep end. It's Hebrews 1, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's the opening paragraph, and we find ourselves in the deep end of the pool. We find ourselves in a place where American Christians rarely swim, rarely swim. I've told you before about a study that comes out every two years. It's called the State of Theology Study. It's produced by a group called Ligonier in partnership with a group called Lifeway. They did it in 2020. They just released the 2022 study. This was one of the questions they asked in the study. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus is not God, but he's really good, really big, really important first, and God created him. And what they wanted was a true or false. If you've read the Bible, if you've read Hebrews 1, you would say that's false. That's false. Jesus was not created. Jesus is the creator. He wasn't created by God. He is God. That's the clear testimony of Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, John 1, the book of Revelation. And yet in this study, a whopping 61% of self-professed evangelicals said that's true. These are not non-church-going people. You can filter the study online to get people who don't go to church. Their answers are worse. This is people who go to church, and they don't just go to any church, they go to what we would call evangelical churches, churches that at least in theory say, we believe the Bible's the Word of God and we want to teach the Word of God. And two-thirds of self-identified evangelicals are confused on one of the most basic Bible truths about who Jesus is. They're unorthodox, to use a term from church history and the world of theology, they are heretical in their views of who Jesus is. He is God, and we would add to that in Hebrews 1, a second and third descriptor, He is the creator and He is the sustainer. Just to clarify, obviously God is the creator and God is the sustainer. But Hebrews is just piling these ideas up on top of each other. Yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he is the radiance of God's glory. Verse 2, he's also the one through whom the world was created. 
Verse 3, he's also the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. This is a basic Bible truth that Christians have believed all the way going back to the early church in the book of Acts, all throughout church histories. Christians have literally through the ages given their lives to defend this truth about Jesus Christ. That He is truly God. He is the Creator, and He is the sustainer of all that exists. In fact, theologian Donald Guthrie says this, the Christians, speaking of the early Christians, they were convinced that the same person who had lived among men was the one who created men. He's God. Truly God. Yes, He's truly man. But he's truly God. And yes, that's a miracle. And yes, Christians believe it. We believe that Jesus is the one who created all things. Hebrews 2.10 says all things were created for him and by him. He's the creator. And he's the sustainer of everything that exists in the universe simply by his word. Every person will have to answer the question, who do I believe Jesus to be? Who is he? I can tell you this, there are non-Christian, non-Bible-believing historians galore who will look you in the face and say, I am 100% certain, I do not believe this book is true, but I'm 100% certain that a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived in Palestine about 2,000 years ago. There is so much historical evidence for it, even a non-Christian would not deny it. There was someone named Jesus. The question is, who was he? Who is he? One of the more famous people who wrestled with this question is a man named C.S. Lewis. He lived in England with Spurgeon, and he wrestled with this question. He was not a believer. He was a confirmed atheist slash agnostic, and he was a world-renowned literature professor. Brilliant mind. But he did not believe the truth about Jesus until he started reading the Bible until he started talking with friends who shared the gospel with him, until the Holy Spirit changed his heart, and he became convinced that Jesus actually was the Son of God and all that that entails. He gave a series of radio lectures. This is in a different era of media. He got on the radio and he gave these lectures, he gave these talks, and he talked about how he came to faith in Jesus and what he believed as a follower of Jesus. And those talks became a book that we know today as Mere Christianity, one of the most famous books that's ever been written by a Christian in the English language. In that book, Lewis presses home the argument that you individually have to decide what you believe about Jesus. And this is how he makes the argument. Lewis says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. This is the foolish thing that people say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And Lewis comes back and he says, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man 
and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. You've got to wrestle with this question. The question is not, did Jesus of Nazareth exist? He most certainly existed. The question is, who do you believe that he is? Simply a man? Simply a moral teacher? Simply somebody on the level with Buddha or Muhammad or some other religious teacher? Or is he God in human flesh? You understand Lewis was not the first person to press this question on people. Jesus himself pressed this question on the disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said, who do people say that I am? They gave all the answers and then Jesus got really direct with him and he said, okay, who do you say that I am? I don't care about the crowds. I want to know who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke for the group and he said, you're the Christ. That means you're the Messiah. That literally means you're the anointed prophet, priest, and king. You're the Christ. And then Peter added, you're the Son of God. And by that, Peter did not mean, man, you are right almost up there with God, really close. He meant you are God. That's who he is. Jesus is God. He's the creator, and he's the sustainer. Now, part two of Spurgeon's sermon, part two of our time together this morning, what did Jesus come to do? And Peter has just answered the question for us. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. We'll break this down into three pieces. What does Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 teach us about the work of Jesus, the Son of God? Firstly, as the prophet, Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. He's the full and final revelation of God. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. He spoke. The God of the Bible is a God who speaks. He wants to be known. He doesn't want you to have to guess who He is or what He's like. He tells you. He's a God who speaks. There's a great Baptist theologian named Carl Henry who talks about this verse. God spoke to our fathers and he says, What a wonder that the God of the Bible is a God who forfeits His personal privacy to speak to us so that we can know Him. He wasn't obligated to do that. It's an act of His grace that He would speak to us and tell us who He is and what He's like. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. 
All of the things that God said in the Old Testament point forward and lead up to Jesus. And everything that is said in the Bible, in the New Testament, by the apostles after Jesus, points back to Jesus and looks to Jesus. He's the center of God speaking to His people. If you want to know who He is, God, and what He's like and what He thinks, you look to Jesus and you listen to Jesus. He's the prophet. The prophet's job in the Old Testament was to go to the people and to say, God says this. God thinks this. God feels like this. God wants you to do this. He spoke for God. That's what Jesus does. Secondly, as the priest, Jesus made purification for our sins. Verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by His word of power. As if that wasn't enough, it says that He made purification for sins. Now here, in this paragraph, the book of Hebrews does not tell us how Jesus did that. But in the rest of the book, that begins to be unfolded. How is it that Jesus, the Son of God, made purification for sinners, like me and you who are unclean, dirty, and unworthy? How did He do that? Well, Hebrews 2 and 3 and 4 says that He became like us. God became man. He became like us in every respect, yet He was without sin. He came to live among us, to be one of us. The end of Hebrews will tell us that He is alive, He's been raised from the dead, He's ascended to heaven, He's sitting on the throne of the universe and heaven, even now as we speak, and He lives now to help His people. He intercedes for them to make them pure. And the heart of all of it is right in the middle of the book of Hebrews, when you get to about chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. How did he make purification for sins? He died on a cross for sinners. It's one of the great plot twists in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the priest offered the blood of bulls and goats. But in the fullness of time, when God sent his son, born of a virgin, he didn't come to offer the blood of bulls and goats, the book of Hebrews says. He came to offer himself. The good shepherd died for the sheep, and He died to purify us from our sins. We'll talk more about that as we go through Hebrews. Number three is the King, Jesus, is reigning on the throne of heaven. He's reigning on the throne of heaven. He made purification for sins. After that, the book of Hebrews says in verse 3, He sat down. He sat down. That's a strange thought in the Jewish mind. It's a strange thought in the Jewish mind because in the Jewish tabernacle, in the Jewish temple, there were no chairs. There were no benches. There were no stools. The priest was always standing because his work was never done. There was always another sacrifice to be offered. He never sat down while he was on the clock. He always stood. And yet this priest made purification for sins and then... To use our language, he took a seat. He sat down. Where? Hebrew says, at the right hand of the majesty on high. You remember what Isaiah 42.8 says about the Lord? I am the Lord, 
and I will not share my glory with another. What a beautiful picture where the father welcomes the son home and he sits the son at his right hand and he shares this throne with the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. He's reigning and he's ruling even now. Some of our ladies have been studying the book of Revelation and our men, some are coming on Tuesday nights as we study Revelation. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Revelation 4 and 5 just so you can get a sense of what this scene is like as the Lord Jesus Christ sits on the throne of the universe. Revelation 4 will begin in the middle of verse 8, which is obviously a callback to Isaiah 6, which we read earlier. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You can jump down to verse 11. The worship sounds like this. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. We've talked about Jesus being the creator this morning. He's holy. You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. By your word, the, the whole universe is held up. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. There's a group singing a new song, and they sing this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, by your own blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Verse 12 Thousands and myriads are saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. May 21, 1882, Sunday night church at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Charles Spurgeon asked his people to open to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. He talked to them about who Jesus is as the Son of God. He talked to them about what Jesus came to do on our behalf as our prophet, our priest. And our king. And then he ended with this prayer. God give to every one of you. To have a part and a lot among this blessed company. He had just talked about the worship of heaven. And the myriads and the thousands. And all the creatures worshiping. And he says God give to every one of you. To have a part and a lot among this blessed company. For his dear name's sake. Amen.